As my friend Adam and I began to discuss writing a book so long ago, several variables proved to be daunting, to say the least. Very quickly, what to say and how to say it became increasingly more frustrating, and added to the mix, neither one of us had ever written a book before. Where does one begin? How do we take others down a path, specifically a path that calls into question everything we have been taught to believe? There was no doubt whatsoever that we needed, wanted, and felt moved to write a book. Beginning the process felt as if we were charging uphill in a 105-degree Texas heat, boulders, rocks, and pebbles tripping us at every turn with no end in sight. How many books have been written by the experts claiming to have identified and defined all the problems with religion, church doctrine, or Christianity as a whole? We knew that we had stumbled onto something that could not remain in the confines of our weekly table chats and afternoon office exchanges. We needed to put these thoughts, questions, and understandings into words for others to read and to think about in hopes that serious change might result. You see, unlike the days of yesteryear, the time in which we currently live gives everyone a microphone. Everyone has a very public opinion, and everyone is shouting from the tops of the social media mountains as to why the world is the way that it is and what we all need to do to fix it. We certainly do not claim to know what is wrong with the world outside of what Scripture says is wrong. We certainly have less than sufficient influence to fix the world. We do not know what everyone needs to do other than return to Jehovah and his teachings, But we do know one thing for sure. The Christian religion practiced today in the United States, parts of South America, and parts of Europe looks little to nothing like how the people walked out the reality of their trust and hope in the one and only true and living God described in both Testaments. We have often thought that if a person deviates merely one degree from the present course, in a short time, he can scarcely perceive a departure from the path. But after a millennium of divergence, that one degree becomes exponentially compounded so that a once-present course is no longer even perceptible. This is what we believe has happened to Christianity. Our Bibles, for the most part, still hold a record of that once-present course. Yet because of gradual deviations in the form of misinterpretations, misinformation, along with cultural biases and prejudices, we are a thousand miles off course and do not even realize it. It is the aim of this book to demonstrate just how far from that once present course we have drifted, what caused the drift, and what we can do to get back on track. In Christianity, there has always been a dark cloud looming overhead. That cloud is threatening and hangs there perpetually as a reminder that our salvation hangs by a thread. The Christian is raised that he or she must get it right to even be considered for salvation. My subscription to all the correct ideals, truths, and understandings in the Bible is what will ultimately determine whether I end up in a lake of fire or a sea of fire and glass. But it's not true. None of that is true. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
not a result of works, so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Many authors, teachers, preachers, and influencers in Christianity want to get their enlightened ideas out there, because if they get it right, they get to go to heaven. Get it wrong, and you're toast. What about all the people who have gone before us? Or maybe who simply are not where you and I are at the present? Will we be judged by whose teaching got it closest to fine at the end? What about my grandparents or great aunt or best friend who didn't see things the way I've seen them and spoken about in this book? What happens to them? Ask yourself this. Has Christianity produced, despite all the problems, inconsistencies, missteps, and downright errors, people who bore fruit for God, fruit of the Spirit, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, righteousness, and justice? Will we not be judged by what we did with what we had? Will not our ancestors be judged by what they did with what they had? Is this not the parable of the talents? If it is about getting it all right all the time, none of us will make it. Most of all, me. My prayer is that we are judged on what we know and what we did with that knowledge, not by what we should have known and should have done in the theoretical. In the end, this book is about cherry-picking. I have been pointing a finger at Christianity, calling her out on cherry-picking. It is a grave inconsistency to live in all of the covenants and promises from the Old Testament while claiming that all the curses and punishments were nailed to the cross. You cannot have it both ways. We have attempted to show thus far that Jesus did not cherry-pick from the First Testament, but obeyed all of the instructions of the Almighty that applied to him. Obviously, laws about feminine hygiene, priestly duties in the temple, landowner allowances, and restrictions did not apply to our Master Jesus, because he wasn't a woman, wasn't a priest serving in the earthly temple, and he wasn't a landowner. But a good question might be, What would he have done had he been those things? Would he have followed those instructions from his Father in heaven? Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 22, is the messianic prophecy. Jesus is the prophet to whom we must shema, or listen and obey. Paul was not a prophet. Jude was not a prophet. Peter, James, and John were not the prophets to whom we must listen and obey. Jesus is the prophet with a capital P, if you will, and whatever authority he gave to his disciples must never disagree, oppose, or disconfirm anything that Jesus taught. If it looks like one of their teachings does oppose one of Jesus' teachings, then only one thing can be true. Your or my understanding of their teaching is off, period. For example, if Jesus never sinned, He could never have eaten unclean food. This is because the backdrop for Jesus' diet was the Torah. If it looks like Jesus sweeps away the kosher food laws given by Moses in Mark chapter 7, or Paul is telling the churches that they can eat whatever they want as long as it does not make a brother stumble, then we have some work to do. Praise God. 
Instead of ignoring the glaring problem of Jesus breaking the Torah or Paul breaking the Torah, maybe we should ask ourselves what Jesus and Paul defined as food in the first place. Forgive the crassness of the following example. Bacon is salty and to many a delicious daily comestible. Boogers are also salty and to many a delicious comestible. However, you and I know that despite the fact that boogers are indeed edible and eaten, unfortunately, by many people, that does not make them food. In the same way, when Jesus declares all food to be clean, you must ask yourself if a pig or vulture or camel was considered to be food for Jesus. If food was defined as what God said could be consumed as food, then when Jesus declares all food clean, what is he really saying? He's not actually saying anything different from what God said was clean food. The accusation in Mark 7 had to do with ritual defilement of clean food by defiled hands. The argument the Pharisees were making was that because the disciples did not remove defilement from their hands by washing according to the Pharisaical takana of hand washing, something Yehovah never sanctioned in the Torah, they had rendered their clean, say, chicken sandwiches, unclean through contact with unclean hands. And once they ate their unclean sandwiches, they had defiled their entire selves. Jesus says the equivalent of Ah, horse pucky. Hands that are not washed according to your phantom rules no more render the food unclean than spit. What defiles a person is the evil that comes out of their hearts, not a silly chain reaction of ritual impurity that you clowns have invented. Thus, he declared all food clean. Emphasis mine. Jesus' verdict is that edibles in the category of food as defined by God does not suddenly become categorically unclean. Categorically clean edibles remain categorically clean edibles regardless of what the Pharisees might think or teach. Torah, or what God said, trumps the scholars from Jerusalem once again. That is the point of Mark 7 and the point I am getting at with Jesus as the prophet to whom we must listen and obey. Therefore, If it is to Jesus whom we must listen and obey, then how is it that we listen a lot better to Paul and Peter than to Jesus? What I mean is, why do we take what Paul wrote as or more authoritative than certain of Jesus' teachings? One of the lies that our fathers have inherited is that Jesus gave Paul and his other apostles authority to cover themes that Jesus did not cover to change things that Jesus did not change, and to accuse or excuse what Jesus did not accuse or excuse. This book is about questioning the doctrines, teachings, practices, and beliefs of Christianity. This should not cause fear or anger in anyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. Here's why. If what Christianity has is truth, then there's no need to worry. For truth can be demonstrated in many different ways. If everything we've been taught holds water, then what could possibly destroy it? But let me ask you a question. What would you do if some long-held Christian belief were to show signs of cracking or breaking? What if some of the things we've been taught 
were in error. Would you seek out more or different truth from what you currently have, even if it was shown to be corrupted? Or would you close your eyes to the weaknesses in your truth and go on about your day doing what you've always done because the alternative is simply unthinkable? That is what this book is about. I want to audit the beliefs and practices of Christianity as a whole. If the bookkeeping is sound, the one being audited has nothing to worry about. But if there are discrepancies and additions and subtractions that have not been noted or accounted for, the one being audited must reconcile those records or be held accountable for the errors. Is it any different with God the Father or Jesus his Son? Is that not what the day of the Lord or judgment day is all about? If we are absolutely sure that what we have inherited is absolutely solid as a rock, we have nothing to worry about. But if our audit in this book shows signs of errors in the accounting, then we must reconcile those errors or be held accountable for them. 